What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi everyone, CJ here. Welcome to episode 80 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This will be the fourth part of my conversation with Bill Bupert of ZeroGov.com on the history of irregular warfare. Some of the topics discussed in this episode are the so-called decolonization wars conducted by the British and French in the decades following the Second World War, as well as the French and American experiences facing insurgency and guerrilla warfare in Vietnam. Anyway, without further ado, I'm happy to share this fourth part of this series. Okay, here here we are with now our our fourth installment on irregular warfare with Bill Bupert, and we've been discussing this uh, mini series. is looks like it's going to run to five episodes, <laughs> simply because of all of the all of the tangents, all of the uh, the connections, all of all of the the things unanticipated that come up in the conversation and so on. Which I guess we should have been smart enough to to realize would probably happen once we got going, but. We didn't. We thought we could keep it to four. But any, anyway, Bill, welcome back for round round four. Uh, thanks. It's, it's such a pleasure to be back, and I just love discussing this stuff. And let's get on with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very happy to talk to someone who is an expert on on military matters generally and uh, irregular warfare in particular, who is not a state worshiping bootlicker um, the way so many of of the people who write and speak on these matters are. Well, thank you, and I'm relieved to be talking to a podcast host who is exactly the same way. <laughs> okay, so where where we left off in our in our uh, itinerary was we were going to talk next about some of the post World War II insurgencies and then counterinsurgencies, in particular, a lot of the ones having to do with uh, decolonization, where the the British and French are. Sometimes kind of willingly, sometimes unwillingly, are are doing their best to shed some of their empire um, after World War II when they're both broke and are a shadow of their former uh, former power. Yeah. So some of these are pointed to today as examples of quote unquote successful counterinsurgency campaigns, and one that you hear very often. And of course, uh, who was it? Nagel had the book "Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife." Exactly. That I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you know well. Yes. Um, one of the one of the ones that is most often brought up as a successful counterinsurgency campaign is the so-called emergency in British Malaya after World War II, and um, so we can talk about that one and also talk about some of the other British and also French post World War II insurgencies. But uh, I guess first first Malaya, toss that out there. Um, don't you know, Bill, that 
Malaya is a wonderful example of successful counterinsurgency warfare that everybody should use as their blueprint, and that this is why brilliant people like General Petraeus won the war in Iraq, and that's why Iraq is now a peaceful, secular democracy that's equal parts <laughs> Jesus and Ronald McDonald. May I simply say Sark off or Sark on? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, that was me doing my best to play devil's advocate. That, oh, was, me playing, yeah. that was me playing neocon uh, Coindonista statist. But, no, yeah, if, you know, go. if I lived in Coindonista Central in Mordor on the Potomac and I happened to commute to the pentagram or maybe be a telecommuter to the pentagram, that this would be the very storyboard that I would have to read every morning and reiterate, yeah, the British really broke the code. What I See, want to do is I want to bust willing- out of yeah, I was just going to just say real quickly, if if you would uh, set aside all of your, your philosophy and your ethics and whatever, and just, you know, jump into that, jump into that mode, you could probably be featured on Fox News on a regular basis as a as a counterinsurgency, counterterrorism expert. Oh, I, I, I'm certain that I could. But obviously, because of the episodes that we've done so far, the episode we're going to do now. And the fifth episode that you have so uh, happily handed to us, uh, you're going to discover why faux news, the Communist News Network, and all the rest of them in between won't get near me for that kind of thing. Yeah, this is the same reason that I'm not I'm not teaching history at an Ivy League school, because I am just constitutionally incapable of selling out. <laughs> Good for you. Not making feces one of your five group food groups just makes you an honorable man. Yeah, yeah, I'd rather not. All right, so Malaya, go ahead. So you mentioned emergency. Remember that the British called each one of these an emergency. For instance, in Kenya with the Mau Mau campaign that they call it, they called that an emergency. Now, here's the script, and you were sort of alluding to this. Kitson, Kilcullen, Nagel, Petraeus, and all the great rock star names among the current Coindonista universe in the West all say, well, if you simply look at the British example of counterinsurgency, you can see that not only did they break the code, but they wrote the book on how it's done properly. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, but guess what? I'm going to look into it because I know how the British fared in World War I. I know how they fared in World War II. I know how they fared with their, their imperial wars. I know what they did to Ireland. I know what happened to them because – all this Coindonista nonsense that you're seeing today with the aforementioned rock star names that I just talked about, all these guys are doing is taking petty wars, small wars, imperial wars, basically statist wars that aren't full-on conventional conflicts, and taking that 19th century and that 20th century failed model and saying, no, 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 if we just change the lexicon, if we just tweak the history a bit, we can make it seem as if we're saying something sensible when all of us know who have observed the aftermath of Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, now Yemen, now Syria, the Horn of Africa, Somalia, all of these alleged counterinsurgencies that America has been involved in, the British have been involved in, the French in Algeria, the French in Indochina. It is a tapestry of Western failure in trying to do what they do. So the British of Malaya, General Templar, who became an administrator there after a period of time and became the general in charge, is one of the ones who started the Hearts and Minds campaign. Well, when we think of Hearts and Minds, we think, well, what they did is they married political and military means, a very Clausewitzian fixture, because Clausewitz was the one who said 
that war is nothing more than the extension of politics. And that's true. There's no doubt about that. But Templar is the one who said that 80% of what you do in a counterinsurgency fight is political, economic, socio, sociological. 20% is the military. The military is a junior partner. What he fails to mention, or what his chroniclers have failed to mention in painting the tapestry of what is the Malayan emergency as successful coin, is what did he do exactly to stop the MCP, the Malayan Communist Party, from, from conducting this emergency? Well, the first thing that he did is he militarized the police, and he made it so that the constabulary had the same kind of power that the military did. He also inaugurated concentration camps, not a new British thing, because the British had done this in the First and Second Boer Wars at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century. I had mentioned earlier about the impact of the Korean War on fuel and rubber and the way that caused inflation, and this caused a lot of economic disconnect on the Malayan Peninsula that caused the MCP to gain some power. Some of the advantages that Malaya had as a currency is, number one, it was isolated. Number two, sanctuary wasn't available to the Chinese communist. And number three, the Chinese communists who were fighting in this were relegated in a fashion because they were not popular among the mass base, as it were. They were operating in rather isolated ways. But what Templar and the rest of them did is they took as many as 500,000 members of the indigenous culture that was there and put them in concentration camps and tried to economically isolate them. And they started using the police methods that we're so familiar with from Iraq and Afghanistan and all the wars that we've seen recently where you have the midnight raids, you have the doors shattered, you have the men with guns coming in. They're taking away the men, they're taking away children, sometimes they're taking away women, they're shooting them, they're killing them, they're maiming them. The police are militarized to do the very same thing. Well, in the end, what happens? The Malayan emergency does pass on, but it can't be chalked up as something that was won because it pretty much went by the wayside because the MCP, the, the Malayan Communist Party, and their functionaries lost their ability to prosecute the conflict because they had strategic deficit disorder, they had no external sanctuary. They had no external support. And they were a command and control mess when it came to conducting their tactical and operational military goals against the British Army. It's not as if the British Army didn't do things, though, that made them keystone cops in the process. And remember, the Malay emergency, it's been touted as, as this, this great way to do things because of the methodologies that were used, the methodologies that I just described to include the use of police. Now, have we employed those methodologies in Iraq and Afghanistan, for instance? We certainly have. And you mentioned earlier in the episode, in the intros, that, well, Iraq is now a peaceful and democratic nation that is neutral and maybe even beneficial to the national security status of the West and especially the United States. We know that that's a fabrication. We know that's made up because that's not what it is. It's a bloody mess as a result of, of the coin that's been imposed on it, especially the 2006 and 2007 business with Petraeus saying we've got a new way of doing things because of the 2004 manual change that took a lot of this 19th century and 20th century imperial nonsense, codified it, made it into TTPs, 
and now the American military is doing it in the 21st century. Has it led to the quashing of insurgency? I would suggest to you, no, it hasn't. What it's done is it's gave birth to more insurgencies than were there in the first place. When Malaya happened, the UK was conducting counterinsurgency operations during that 15 years in Malaya and Cyprus and Kenya and Aden and Oman and Palestine and in the Suez Canal Zone. Did they in any one of those in a success which dictates that the people were better off after the British left than when they came in the first place to conduct the coin? I would say categorically no. Yeah, that was the problem I always had because uh, when I was in graduate school, my my major field of study was British Empire, and primarily like uh, since the 18th century. You know, I, I didn't I didn't go way back to to William Wallace or anything. Yeah, but um, the the problem I always had with with that whole concept of how how slick the British are at counterinsurgency is, well, the British Empire number one, the British Empire still fell apart and largely disappeared after World War II. And number two, as you just said, so many of the places that the British left were were worse off. Much so worse off. In in what in what sense is that a success? I mean, is it a, is it a success that I don't know that the the British were able to slough off their empire uh, without getting their state overthrown at home? Like, is, I mean, that's about the only thing I could I, I guess you could say where the British Empire fell. In a in a more graceful way than say the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire is that the British didn't have their state at home overthrown or anything like that, and uh, and the French almost did in some of their in you know related to Algeria and all that the French almost had had an overthrow of their state at home over these things, but like in in what sense is any of this a success? How how do you even define success when you look at the British Empire goes extinct? And the the places that they supposedly – one of the reasons that's given for them fighting these counterinsurgency wars is, well, it's it's altruistic, you see. They had already made the decision they were going to leave these places, and they were still willing to invest these resources in a counterinsurgency campaign because they couldn't let you know local communists or, or other local crazies take over. And so they just wanted to make sure that as they exited, there were decent governments in charge you know, on the, on the way out. And, and that certainly wasn't the case when, when we look at it. You know, by 1962, it appears to me that – what the British owned, what what the vestiges of their empire was, was a few rocks, Ascension, yeah. Pitcairn, the Falklands, all the rest. They had sloughed off and lost the Indian Raj in 1947. And then between 47 and 52, they lost Amman, they lost Aden, they lost the Suez Canal, they lost uh, Malaya, and of course, Kenya. And I wanted to concentrate on Kenya because I think one of the reasons why you don't hear a lot about that is because it was so monstrous the way the British handled that. Malaya, it, the Koinonistas love to use that as, as an example, but like you said, if it was such a sterling example, then why did they try to get rid of it like a hot potato so quickly? A place that was very resource-rich and intensive, yet they got rid of it because they managed to get rid of it because of their heavy-handed policies that managed to alienate most of the mass base that they were supposedly protecting from a small contingent of Chinese communists. So with Kenya, what do you know about Kenya, CJ, since you did study the British Empire? Yeah, 
I, I would say that on on that particular one and, and the Mau Mau's and all that, I'm a I'm a bit rusty. I did read up on it a bit when I was in graduate school, but that was you know ten ten plus years ago. Sure. But my understanding is that you you had this this uprising there. You had a white settler community, but it was it was it was big enough to matter, but it was still relatively small, a tiny percentage of the population of Kenya. And that you had this insurgency, and if I recall correctly, there was some importance of of oaths among the insurgents. They had they had kind of uh, yeah, they called it uh, oathing, which was like a. Um... It was a passage to manhood through hardship, but the way the British interpreted it is they called oathing Mau Mau. They quite literally said oathing was Mau Mau because that's what the Kikuyu called it. The Kikuyu were the principal elements of the insurgency that arose. Now, what the British did for this insurgency, to make this insurgency to, to quell it, is, of course, they employed the military, they employed the police. They employ concentration camps. They employ cattle seizure. And as you're aware, since I know you studied the British Empire, how important were cattle to the Zulu, for instance, or the Maasai? Oh, yeah. Cent- centerpiece of, of their economy and in many ways their culture. Everything. Yeah. So what they did is they said all Kikuyu are criminal tribe. Now, mind you, this is a subpopulation of Kenya proper within the map lines of what they're So they arrest... 8,000 people. At the end of the conflict, and I'm fast-forwarding here, but we're going to talk about the meat of it nonetheless, but this will give you perspective. 100 Europeans dead. 11,000 Kikuyu dead. Kenyan police reserves and special branch actually disappeared people. And these are the people that you just referred to, CJ, where you said that these are the white settlers, the collaborators, the loyalists, and the people who they managed to finagle into an alliance with the British colonial power. The coin measures that they imposed were, and of course, since you did study the British Empire, you know what happened with Gandhi in South Africa, photo IDs, internal passports, shanty clearings, roadblocks, closing down the, uh, the business of supplying food, emergency courts with expanded powers. We all know what that's about now, don't we? Yeah. Insurgents, if you were an insurgent, you would end up on the most part. Internment in 1954, by 1954, this whole emergency had been from like 50 to 58. 27,000 were interred and 20,000 were put on what's called reserves, much like aboriginal reservations in the United States. And by the way, you'll find this interesting. There were complaints at home from the Labor Party about the treatment of the black Africans to which the colonial office and the Home Secretary responds, well, the European Convention on Human Rights doesn't apply to Africans. So, 800 settlements were surrounded by trenches, barbed wire, watchtowers, and starvation and forced labor were used as weapons and tools of compliance at those 800 settlements. Erskine, one of the directors from the colonial office who was stationed there, resettled more of the population than the French did in Algeria and the Portuguese did in Mozambique. Confiscation of land benefited, of course, perverse incentives because those special reserves that I talked about, the police battalions, the white settlers, what the French would call the Pétain Noir, 
those folks who had come from Great Britain or those folks who had been suborned in there to be part of the British colonial infrastructure? What's going to be the, uh, the incentive for asset forfeiture and seizure of the Kikuyu? Do you think that it would be easy in a British court to all of a sudden say, your lands were your lands, but we're going to give them to these people? Are there, do you think there would be perverse incentives in the system to make that happen on a very rapid and frequent basis? Of course. Of course there would. So, again, we're, we're looking at all this, and, and they, uh, they just did monstrous things. They had something called the Pipeline. The pipeline, with a capital P, was literally a re-education process that a Kikuyu went through in order to get his land and cattle back. What It, it would have made the Soviets blush in, in what they tried to do with folks as far as the re-education was concerned. By 1957, they did something called Operation Progress. Now, this is very interesting. And it reminded me of the 2006 and 2007 surge that happened in Iraq and some of the things that have happened in Afghanistan, beatings and horrific tortures took place. Of course, this is on a par with imperial aggression, petty war, small war aggression, and the kind of things that happened. Incarceration that happened during the Mau Mau Rebellion in Kenya, it, it, was, uh, it exceeded anything that was done by the Dutch in Indonesia and the French in Algeria with the FLN. The whole point of all this is to show that the Mau Mau insurgency, for which the British have apologized in the last three years to Kenya for, for how monstrous they were, this was not an example of how to do insurgency right. This was an example, I mean, how to do counterinsurgency right. This was an example on a par with the playbook that the West has done with coin in the 20th century throughout the entirety of that century, putting these, these post-colonial holdings down that they were trying to keep. I think part and parcel, when I look at the history of coin, there's a lot of echoes in French Algeria and Portuguese Mozambique and British Kenya and a British Malaya that we see in Afghanistan and Iraq and Yemen and Syria and, and the Horn of Africa, where the Americans and the French and the British go by this playbook in which if I took the police out of the playbook and I took the perverse incentives out, they wouldn't be left with much of a policy, which leads me to a conclusion I think I am uniquely qualified to make. If you've ever read my blog, you know that I and complain bitterly about police states, police behavior, police misbehavior, police corruption, police violence, police murders, which are, by the way, at 860 people murdered by the police in America since January 1st today. Well, I didn't see this connection before, CJ, but absent the police or the military acting as police, could these coin methodologies that you and I have described over the past few episodes been executed? seems like it's, a, it's an essential part of it. It, it is. And, and isn't it interesting then to uh, – and, and some of the audience may think that I'm really stretching the connection, but I would ask them to try to grok and examine the connection. Is there a connection – between police behavior and Western powers in, in allegedly peaceful states like America, like Great Britain and such, and these coin operations. In other words, I just got finished penning an essay on the coming domestic insurgency, which is going to be a Newtonian third law reaction to police overextension of escalation of violence against the population. 
I do think it's coming on the horizon. I do think that there's going to be a backlash and it's going to be ugly when it comes. And I was just asking myself in preparation for these episodes, is there a relationship between the two? Is, is it really outlandish for me to make the conflation that the way states behave and coin with police organizations, is that similar at all with either the present or the potential behavior in the in in their own countries yeah i think there's there's lots of connections in some cases going way back a century or more there's the the old saying and i don't know who coined this the saying but um the empire always comes home right yes that when when you have these um these empires normally they start off where the rules are one way when you're in the metropolis, when you're in the mother country, and then the rules are different when you're out there in the in the colony, so to speak. And so, very often in the in the imperial metropolis, it, at least initially at the start of the imperial project, there is more lip service to, and perhaps even even real respect for concepts like the supposed individual protections in the Bill of Rights and th- those sorts of things, right? So that someone living in the United States is, at least theoretically and, and sometimes in practice, is treated better than, than say, a Filipino insurgent in the early 20th century. <laughs> but but that as time, as time goes on, through various means, the, the uh, methodologies used out there in the imperial hinterland come home to the mother country. And that a lot of those same oppressive police state sort of measures gradually become commonplace, even even at home in the metropolis. And and you could see that with the United States and in the Philippines in the early 20th century. Uh, The historian Alfred McCoy has actually done some work on this, on the connection between the American methods in the Philippines, then then coming home, coming home to roost. In the case of the British, I think there's a lot of examples of that some from Ireland and some from further abroad. Uh, I've even read some history that indicates that a lot of the the British are known, particularly in the latter half of, of the 20th century onward, as being very big on gun control yes. in the UK. Yeah. And how much of those those policies, those ideas of gun control, came from the imperial trying to police the empire and their experience there? So, you know, they would disarm indigenous peoples and what have you, so they couldn't couldn't rebel. And then once you started having um, around the time of World War One, you started having the uprising in Ireland and uh, at least fears, whether they were justified or not, of potential communist insurrections inside uh, inside Britain itself. And that that was the beginning of a lot of Britain's draconian gun control laws was taking the, the methods that had already been applied out in the empire and just applying them at home to the domestic population. So long story short, the empire always comes home. And, and it's aided by the fact of how often do, uh, do veterans from, from imperial wars come home and end up working in, in uh, law enforcement, in domestic policing? Absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, you've really bridged this connection nicely between what the empire does abroad and always does at home. For instance, in Great Britain, they have 25%, I think, of all the surveillance cameras on planet Earth are located in Britain. And I remember watching this really interesting, I think it was an A&E special. What's it like to live in World War II Britain? Where they took a family and they put them in a sort of like living in a turn of the 20th century British manner. 
living in the 19th century American West. They would take families and put them in these real-life dramas where they follow them and see how they adjust. One of, the, one of the commentators made a really interesting observation. He said that outside of the Soviet Union, during World War II, Great Britain was the most repressed and surveilled society on the face of the earth. And I thought to myself, that's curious. But then again, maybe it's not. Maybe that's because of British Empire. For instance, where does waterboarding come from? Waterboarding comes from the Philippine experience, in which I think one or two out of every three male Filipinos, or maybe it was also female Filipinos, who were waterboarded during America's occupation of the Philippines died in the process. So we, we, we see that that certainly came home. The biometrics technology that you see being used instead of conventional identification by card technology in Afghanistan and Iraq, I'm certain that's going to come home and will probably be an ancillary to the Real ID Act in the United States. And we've already seen the little inklings of of drones for domestic use. Absolutely. Where the police have asked for it and they're using it. I, I don't think there's anything that's been done overseas that won't be done in America eventually as a control measure on the population. And by the way, I don't suspect that CJ and I are talking about reptiloids, conspiracy theories, any of this stuff. All we're talking about is the hard and cold facts that historically, whatever empires do abroad, they will do at home. As a matter of fact, the French took it one step further. As a result of French conventional forces, unconventional forces, and paratrooper forces facing what they called the famous stab in the back, end of quote, much like the Versailles Treaty for the Germans, where they weaponized that phrase, they initiated a coup under which the Fourth French Republic fell, and de Gaulle had to respond in a military way to a military coup against Paris in the early 60s as a direct blowback measure of what they had done against the FLN in Algeria in the 1950s. Yeah, there's all these things, and you can find perceptive uh, critics of empire both in the United States and in uh, in Britain, and I would imagine probably in France too, but, I, but I'm not as well read in the, in the French, you know, because I don't speak French. But you can find perceptive critics of empire of many different ideological stripes pointing this out, you know, 100, 200 years ago, pointing out, hey, you know, all these things that you're doing out there in your empire are, are going to come back on you one way or another, and it's not going to be pretty. You can even find some of, some of the more uh, perceptive of the so-called founding fathers pointing this out back, well, you know, near, near the inception of, of the U.S. government. Yeah, I, I hope that you post in your show notes Alfred McCoy's work because Police in America's Empire, Endless Empire, and A Question of Torture, which I just so happened to have gotten last year, that was quite revealing. It's depressing stuff to read, but it's, it's stuff that you should read. For instance, there's, um, there's two books out about Teddy Roosevelt, and I will get those to you for the show notes But it concerns the white fleet and it concerns the wink and the nod that Teddy Roosevelt gave between 1904 and 1906 to the Japanese Empire, calling them honorary Aryans, wink and nod, that the Anglo-American alliance will recognize that whatever you have to do to secure, and I paraphrase, a economic co-prosperity sphere here in your area, we'll back you up on that. So in 1905... He is setting the conditions and the 
steps for the Japanese to do what they did, uh, you know, a mere 20 to 30 years later. And all of this, I mean, we look at the French experience, we look at the Portuguese experience, we look at the British experience, we look at the modest German experience that I had mentioned in the last episode concerning the Herero and Namaqua genocides in German Namibia at the turn of the 20th century, maybe being the marker and, and the, um, the set-piece experiment for their later Holocaust atrocities that they would commit during the war to save Joseph Stalin. All of these things are a result not simply of historical hindsight, but taking cause and effect and putting these pieces together. Everything that America does abroad, it will do at home. And this takes us sort of back to when I was talking about policing. Let's do a thought experiment. Absent the use of the military or police, what atrocities can be committed against subject populations during these counterinsurgency wars and conflicts? As a matter of fact, are the use of police and police tactics that they're given possibly the residual that makes the difference between conventional warfare and unconventional warfare? Because if we look at mm. the if we look at the Irish experiment, if we look at the Irish experience, for instance, why in the world would Michael Collins assassinate all of those British special detectives at the castle in Dublin? What's his motive? Why would that be such a center ravi, such a fulcrum that he finds so important that he does a spontaneous hit on them on no, on uh, November twenty first, nineteen twenty? I don't know. It seems seems to me there there are you know kind of several several things from there. I mean, part of it is to throw a monkey wrench into the organization by doing that, and to to make those who would be the replacements for those guys who got assassinated uh, maybe not want to take the job. Exactly. Yeah. And and also the the value, the the sort of spectacle value to the general Irish population of number one, look what look what our organization can accomplish, right, and and make them more likely to be supportive, and also this sort of I don't I don't know if the right word would be propaganda or narrative or whatever uh, value of that's the organization that is the one at that time that is most likely to be negatively impacting regular Irish people's uh, daily lives, right? The, the police. Indeed. So that, that scores him, that scores him good karma points with the population by taking those guys out. Well, I'm fond of saying that the police are the pointy end of all politics historically, that no individual can be deprived of their liberty and freedom absent a police force or a police mechanism. Yeah, power emanates from the barrel of a gun. Indeed. So not only do I think counterinsurgency, for the most part, is illegitimate from my philosophical perspective because of what we talked about earlier, where if people wish to opt out of a political process in which they think implied consent is either wrong or non-existent, who are they to stop them from doing that? I mean, a counterinsurgency is trying to prevent somebody from either taking a portion of a country out of that country's present governance or taking over its governance entirely. And, and I think that we, we may have to bifurcate that out. For instance, why in the world would we tell Iraq between 2003 and now 
that a tripartite solution set isn't going to be approved by the West. In other words, the Shia, the Sunni, and the Kurds can't spin off into their own, as Collins would tell us, free state, free republic, non-dominion republic, whatever the case may be. Why can't they? I mean, most counterinsurgents fight the very concept of political sovereignty, opting out, and individual self-determination, when you think about it. What does the counterinsurgent do to assure self-determination? Yeah, other than uh, perhaps helping to oversee blue finger elections that are <laughs> highly, <laughs> highly suspect and controlled. Hey, and, and there's so a hard. reason why the USSR, Cuba, and North Korea hold elections. And yeah. what I'm convinced is because it's, it's a very slick and cunning narrative device that says, well, it may be bad, but you voted for it. To which people yeah, I, will look down at the ground and shuffle their feet and say, yeah, I guess I was part of it, which is why I don't vote. Yeah, yeah, me, me, me neither. I, I've come to the conclusion that more than anything else, an election is is a ritual, and just like any any religious ritual, it's designed to signify some sort of imperceptible change. So, just like for example, the, those who are believing Catholics believe in transubstantiation that the yeah. uh, bread and wine literally becomes the the body and blood of Christ. Well, the um, the election is is a ritual just like just like the Eucharist in which. A a guy who is just an ordinary human being like you and you and I and, and everybody else suddenly becomes more than a man. Suddenly he becomes the honorable senator or suddenly he becomes the president. And now, even though he's still our same species, he has special powers. <laughs> and there's there's nothing that you can actually see that signifies this magical empowerment of this individual. He doesn't suddenly start glowing in the dark or change color or anything like that. Instead, you just have to have the faith that since the ritual of the election and the inauguration have been performed, that this individual now is invested with all of these uh, powers and, and legitimacy and so on. I, th so, I think I there's a tremendous amount to be said for that. You're right. And, and also, as Mencken said, it's an advance auction for stolen goods. Yeah, especially once you have the so, welfare state rolling. Exactly. So I, just so we stay on, stay on target, the reason why it's important for us to talk about voting mechanisms, police functions, things like that, is because whatever counterinsurgents, coindinistas, and all the rest of the defense, it's funny, call them the defense intellectuals when they should be called offense intellectuals. Yeah. And when all these offense intellectuals champion, you know, being coindinistas and, and uh, practicing this new form of warfare, not only is it not new, but it is a form of warfare that's going to come home. And, and of course, war transforms all societies. Randolph Bourne said war is the health of the state. What he meant by that is that You'll notice, just looking at America historically, does the American government invest itself with extraordinary powers during wartime, which it is very jealous to shed once the war is over? We can certainly see ample evidence of that after 1918. 1917, I think the federal – you know what? I'm not even going to cover that. What I'm going to ask your audience to do is please look at the federal debt in 1916. Please look at the federal debt of the U.S. in 1918. And you will be extraordinarily mystified at how it could get so large in so short a time. But the answer, of course, is war is a money laundering operation for the military industrial complex, was then and always has been. Milton Friedman, 1943, one of the economic advisors to Red DR, says 
the withholding tax of income tax, instead of people sending us a check in an envelope, we're going to take a little dribble at a time out of their paycheck so they hardly notice it. And then incrementally, we can increase the amount of money that we take from them. That is a wartime measure. That wartime measure never went away. We give wool subsidies for Korean war era uniforms. We have helium subsidies and reserves in Texas for World War I dirigible subsidies that originally came out. All of this stuff, when you look at it, the, the, the state greatly expands its power every time that there is a war. And I would suggest to everybody who's listening that America has been at war since 1848 and hasn't stopped since then. Yeah. Good point. As, and as George Carlin said, you know, this, this country is a, is a warlike people and we don't, we don't normally acknowledge it. We like to depict our, ourselves and our government as being these reluctant fighters, you know, that we're sort of like the, the nice guy who's walking down the street minding his own business and, you know, biker gangs just keep coming up and, and pushing us and, and hitting us in the face when we're not looking and this sort of thing. And, you know, we, we just we reluctantly have to have to fight occasionally. But our default essence is as a, a peace loving republic. And that's just totally divorced from the facts of reality. Well, isn't it interesting, too? How many times maritime naval incidents have precipitated our involvement in major conflicts? For instance, what precipitated our involvement in 1898? It was a ship. Yep. What precipitated, you know, our entry into World War II? Lusitania. What precipitated our entry into uh, World War, I mean, World War I? World War II, Pearl Harbor. What precipitated our entry into the Vietnam War? The Tonkin incident in 1965. I find it I find it interesting that, that there's there's some naval aspects to the the start of hostilities by America. And one of the reasons that America has to do that is because it has to pick fights. You know what America after eighteen sixty five, do you know what its first foreign incursion was overseas? Mm, after eighteen sixty five was that was that when there was the uh the, the little known operation into um was it Korea or something? It was Korea. See, you know your history. I knew you would. Yeah, it was an ill-fated operation into Korea, 1871. I urge your audience members to look that up. And then, of course, we can fast forward to 1898 because I think the reason why America wasn't too excited about a colonial venture so we could join the, the, the colonial club before 1898 was because they haven't, hadn't quite settled the aboriginal problem across America. And I think by 1898, that had been done to a large extent, except for some tribes in the South and the Lakota Sioux in the North. But eventually, even they were emasculated and liquidated if they resisted too long. And I think that's what started the business with the Imperial Club in 1898. And it hasn't stopped since. I said 1848 earlier because of the Mexican-American War, because America always seemed to be on a war footing after 1848, because, of course, between the War of Northern Aggression and 1848 and the cessation of the Mexican hostilities, you had the Aboriginal Frontier Wars. Those continued to pace after 1865. And then you have the abortive 1871 expedition to Korea. And then we fast forward to 1898, and it hasn't stopped since then. The conflation of counterinsurgency with imperial, petty, and small wars is called what we'll call them, the, uh, the British 
author of the Small Wars Manual, they're one and the same. The Koinonistas today are the champions of a newly packaged imperial policy that reckons back to the 18th century. Take up the white man's burden. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Kipling would be proud. Kipling would be a Koinonista. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking at another another post-World War II insurgency, and, and we can look back to the 19th century as well, the the French in what they called for a long time Indochina. You had mentioned in our email exchanges that regarding Indochina, Vietnam, that you wanted to compare how the French operated there in the 1880s, when I guess they had uh, some degree of, of insurgency going on there, versus how the French and then the United States dealt with, with the region in the mid-20th century. Yeah, I had mentioned a, a fellow by the name of Douglas Porch, one of my favorite, along with Jeremy Black, one of my favorite military historians and, and authors out there who really has a keen eye and a keen analytical process to divorce himself from going with the herd. He wrote a book called Our Friends Beneath the Sands, which is a history of the French Foreign Legion. What led me to read that book was his magisterial work on Dien Bien Phu. And, and what happened there, which was the 1953, it was sort of like the penultimate defeat for the French that drove them out of Indochina was Dien Bien Phu in 1953. And he mentioned in that book that, well, you know, the French had been in Indochina for a long time and they'd been fighting basically the same war in the same wrong way. If we travel back in time to the 1880s, according to Porch, what you saw in the 1960s, except for technological differences, you saw the same kind of behaviors in both the conduct of the counterinsurgency operation by the U.S. and the primitive counterinsurgency operations or imperial small wars operations that the French were conducting in the 1880s and the 1890s. And I think there's a lot of overlap and deep comparisons between the two in which there's not too many contrasts. If one to go to Hanoi today and go to the war museum, They've got a massive wall that has a mural on it that has a timeline of Vietnam being invaded. And uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. But if I recall, on this wall, this wall must have been 20 feet long, but only one foot of it represented the U.S. involvement in Vietnam because they had been at war for the longest time with the French and the Chinese briefly and, and, and others. Yet the death toll for them According to the book escapes me, I think it's called Kill Anything That Moves. Oh, yeah. Kill Anything That Moves. Yeah. Nick Terse, American Empire yes. Project. Yes. Kill Anything That Moves. He estimates two to three million civilians died during that brief interregnum in which the Americans were involved from 62 to 75. That's an extraordinary casualty count. Of course, 55,000 American men and women. I think there were some women in there died in that conflict. And I would suggest that like with most conflicts America involves itself in, those people died needlessly. They certainly didn't die for liberty and freedom. They died for the expansion of the state at home and the state abroad. But I wanted to compare the two because the French imperial project in the 1880s all the way up through the 1950s was no different, if just colored in a different fashion, than the American imperial project from the late 1950s and 62 primarily until they finally got out in 1975. And it was extraordinary to read the firsthand tactical accounts of what the soldiers were fighting in the 1880s compared to the 1960s and the lack of difference except for technology. 
So how were they how are they dealing with it? Were there were they already rolling out things like uh, search and destroy patrols and, they and strategic hamlets and the whole nine yards? Well, I think what we've discovered, CJ, and and or unearthed in this talk of ours is that they are always going to make the population the target, and they're going to color what they're doing to the population as well. It's part of the counterinsurgency campaign. It's part of hearts and minds. It's a but. What it tends to be is it tends to be police actions that are harassment, interdiction, breaking down doors, shooting people in their faces, putting them in concentration camps, shooting anybody that moves. For instance, during the American-Philippine conflict at the turn of the 20th century, there was one island in which a general officer had issued an order that any male over the age of 10, which he considered military age, whether carrying a weapon or not, can be shot on sight. The French did the same thing in Vietnam. And it, did it did it work at all temporarily in the late nineteenth century? Um, did it did it quell resistance temporarily until it flared up around World War II, or or you know, was there always low level resistance going on the entire time? My thinking is, from my reading, and my reading has been casual on that more so than um, than the intense reading I've done on the American involvement there or elsewhere, is that there's always been a low level of resistance, and most of the resistance has taken place in the usual ways you and I would imagine, which is that uh, they'll they'll sell stuff on the black market or the gray market economy. They'll participate in things that avoid paying taxes to the colonial authorities. They'll avoid signing up for stuff that the colonial authorities insist that they do. They'll practice maybe a type of Gandhian non-compliance, like was practiced in the Raj in South Africa. It, you know, before World War II, where the British were occupying there, I think the same thing happened to the French. I think that if you looked at the Portuguese and Mozambique and you look at the Dutch in Indonesia, you look at all of these powers, they always overextend in a fashion where there is almost a constant hum of resistance to the fact that they are there in the first place, in spite of the fact that they may have been there for 100 years. You alluded you alluded earlier to the, uh, the Pete Noir, which is the French white settlers in Algeria who had been there since the 1830s. By 1958 to 62, when the great diaspora of French settlers went to the French mainland to flee Algeria, and Algeria gets its independence, it's one of those extraordinary moments in colonial history in which you discover that just several thousand French white settlers are left in a country they had been for 120 years. And why would that be? Because they had created such a negative and hateful environment for the indigenous people who lived there that they feared for their lives that they remained behind once the British paras, military forces, and police authorities had retreated to the mainland. In, in your estimation, I mean, just from a practical sense, I, I could probably already already guess your stance from a, from a moral perspective. But just even from a practical perspective, even setting aside morality and philosophy for a moment. Is there really any way that any outside power could get a country like Vietnam or a country like Afghanistan, for that matter, to submit if they don't want to submit? I I don't think so. And it's, it's, so, it's so interesting you bring up Vietnam because, of course, James C. Scott wrote about state-repellent regions, and Zomia is one of those places. I think it's 2.5 million square kilometers of mountainous terrain that is in parts of China, Laos, Vietnam, and some other countries. And they call I love that phrase, state repellent, by the way, in which yeah. states have a very hard time regulating the activities of human beings in those areas. 
And in the case of Afghanistan that you mentioned, Afghanistan is an imaginary country. And Kabul, once the last Western boot leaves Afghanistan, Kabul will come under siege and it will fall in, in two to four weeks. There's no doubt in my mind. And outside of Kabul, Afghanistan doesn't exist out as a country, only in Western minds. So even even if one were to kind of put oneself in the, in the status paradigm and say, okay, we believe it's legitimate for, for a government to enforce its preferences on this, this region and this group of people. I mean, there's, it's just, it's a, it seems to me it's just a fool's errand at the end of the day. You know, I, I agree with you. You would think that, with, with, look at Afghanistan and Iraq, for instance, in the American experience there. What has been done of any gravity to make them more vibrant economies? I would suggest to you nothing, absolutely nothing. There's an interesting story by, I think is, uh, I, I can't recall his name, but he wrote a book called Lords of Poverty. He was interviewed on a show and he was talking about Somalia. And he said it was extraordinary because Somalia used to be an agricultural breadbasket. They had a bad year or two bad years in which agriculture suffered terribly. As a result of that, the West comes in with agricultural largesse and brings in all kinds of food, which is free at least donated, you know, somebody paid for it, taxpayers in the West. But it is free to the Somalians. Well, if the Somalians have a choice of paying for food or getting it for free, they're going to get it for free. If you do that for 6, 12, 18, 24 months, if you were a farmer and you made a living doing that, not only has the drought murdered your livelihood, the free food has murdered your livelihood because the perverse incentive is, I'll get the free food, Yet my ability to survive self-sufficiently and agriculturally has been compromised, compromised, maybe cosmically compromised, because there's no more farmers, because they've all gone away. So I, I think that's sort of a, a residual or an atomistic representation, whereas when the West goes into these countries with the best of intentions, they don't understand the second and third order effects that start to destroy the very fabric of the country they're in. In the case of Vietnam... What what do you think about the the whole right wing narrative of, well you see the reason we didn't win in Vietnam was because Lyndon Johnson tied the hands of the military too much and didn't let them kick as much ass as they they knew they shoulda well, and so it, it, Vietnam just proves yeah. that limited war doesn't work. Oh sure, I, you, you know, I've I've heard all that noise before, and if defoliation, execution and liquidation of entire villages, bombing campaigns against civilian targets, if that's not if that's limited war, I don't, I don't know what total war is, but I, I find it disturbing when, when, when folks will say, well, if we'd unleash the military to do what they have to do, what happened? Well, give me an, an historical example of that. I'd love to see it. For instance, I hear all the noise where they say, well, where's the Marshall Plan for Afghanistan and Iraq? Well, you can't have a Marshall Plan for, for third world countries to turn them into first world countries when they were third world countries to begin with. Why did Japan and Germany resurrect themselves as they did to, be, to come into economic preeminence? For Japan, it was because MacArthur, despite not being a free marketeer, held at arm's length all the, the bull crap that the American economists wanted to do over there. And of course, Werner Erhard's economic miracle in Germany in the first two years after, after uh, Germany's capitulation went a long way towards them adopting at least a, a, a semi-free market economy in West Germany. But, see, these were countries that had very strong and robust industrial bases to begin with. 
They had the intellectual capital. They had the first world experience, but you can't go to a third world or developing country and turn them into a first world country, and especially introducing such noxious fumes like democracy and and uh, other stuff to them that they're not, that they're not even a customer familiar with. And and from their perspective, do they, what what right? And this is a rhetorical question: What right do we have to carry this white man's burden to them and tell them, "Hey, this is this is what's best for you because we know it is, even though we're not you." Yeah, but it's one thing if it's you know some other country doing this, but don't don't you know that Team America is special? <laughs> that the laws of physics, the laws of economics, the laws of of uh, history, and 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 even the very marrow of reality itself, that Team America, if if people like you who question the awesomeness of Team America would just be quiet and uh, let everyone else believe hard enough in Team America's awesomeness that uh, we would we would be able to do what all these other empires have been unable to do why because we're america that's why <laughs> you know this this is a cheap shot but what i would ask all americans to ask themselves is this okay so you're having breakfast one morning and chinese tanks roll by your house you're in wisconsin iowa florida whatever the case may be somehow by the clicking of ruby slippers the chinese have militarily invaded the united states and through some miracle, bested the vaunted and legendary U.S. Armed Forces, and they're in charge. And they come to your house and say, hey, don't worry. We're here because we know what's best for you. And we're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure you live in a safe neighborhood. We're going to make sure you get the food you need, all that stuff. Do you think any Americans would object to that? Um, I don't know. Outside, I... I mean, and I mean outside the American Northeast because they would be yeah. helping – they would be welcome as as uh, as as fellow Americans in the American Northeast, yeah, and perhaps some parts of the West Coast too. That's right, that's right. Because I think there's Marxism in the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. Well, no, I mean we've all seen Red Dawn, right? I mean Patrick Swayze and Charlie Sheen would would uh, lead a lead an uprising of Wolverines, and and that would be that. That's right, and 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 that would happen. You know, we as Americans, we live in a country in which it's obvious to anybody with their eyes open and their brains functioning that we are occupied by dc that's the way they lord over the entire country and 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 we still play this game where we think well if we can just get the right guy there we can just get the right person in office it's not about that because dc can't be fixed dc is a malevolent cancerous leviathan organism that rivals the eye of Mordor in the kind of evil that it transmits throughout the body politic every moment of its existence. And, and not only the body politic in America, but globally. I, I think America's been a, a martial disease vector since, the, since 1898. I don't think it's done a whole lot of good. I don't think we should have entered World War I. I don't think we should have entered World War II. I don't think we had any business going to Korea. I don't think we had any business going into Vietnam. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that if we hadn't been in World War I, World War II wouldn't have occurred. And if we hadn't gone to the Philippines and we minded our own business, our politics at home may be more liberty-minded than they are today. Colonialism is corrosive to people embracing and protecting individual freedom and liberty. Yeah, and, and there were people at the time, and that's that's the, the tragedy, is that the, the people who, who have the good ideas are oftentimes not listened to or are shut out 
of the discourse because there were critics of things like the Spanish War and, and the Filipino uh, counterinsurgency war who were saying these very things in 1898, in 1900, saying, you know, if you start down this path, it's going to militarize American society. It's going to remove the kind of um, individualistic and independent instincts of the masses of the American people. And that this is going to destroy what, what was good in terms of the American character from the standpoint of at least claiming to value freedom. I agree. And, and if your audience would look up the Anti-Imperialist League, they can see how that happened. But curiously enough, this same Anti-Imperialist League did not object to the U.S. entry into World War I. So, but you did have an America First League after World War I in the, in the interwar years between I and II, if they even existed, because I'm, I'm of a mind that World War I and II are almost a, a seamless historical entity in, in, in the way they occurred and the way one was the father of the other in this case. But you had the America Firsters. You, you had Charles Lindbergh, who allegedly had national socialist sympathies or whatever the case may be, even though I think that to a large extent that may have been a smear campaign. Because he had only, a German last name. Yeah. Not only was he an American Firster, but he was also going to run against Red DR in 1940. Well, um, anything else that you that you want to mention or bring up specifically related to to Vietnam, um, any any particular thoughts on on the the cleverness or or savvy of people like General Jap? Yes, General Jap is probably one of the finest. I, as a matter of fact, if he's still alive, and we can stipulate this, the Vietnamese do still have a general on active duty who is a hundred and one years old, and it may very well be General Jap, but. That's what the joys of Wikipedia are for, or for us to uh, be able to stipulate that, that that's the case. I, I, would, I would urge your audience to, uh, to research him if possible because he's probably one of the few military leaders in the 20th century who truly knew not only how unconventional warfare worked, not only how conventional warfare worked, but to how, how to marry both to each other at the tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic level. I can't think of somebody... Mao, possibly, even though I, I hold Jap in even higher military esteem than I do Mao, who is a peer to him as far as capability, efficacy, and effectiveness as a military commander. I do want to say this. Everything that you and I have covered, CJ, you and I are, are simply, um, it's the tip of the iceberg. We're, we're simply, we're, we're rubbing at this vast tapestry, just a, a, a tiny corner of it. And two things for your audience. Number one, please don't believe what CJ and I say. Research it yourself. Do some, some topical reading, which is where you read three to five books on the same subject. If you do so, and you do so with an active mind, you're going to become pretty much an expert on whatever you're looking at, as long as you're interrogating that intellectually in a robust fashion when you're reading those books. So don't, uh, you know, sacred cows make the best burgers. If you doubt what we say, please call us on it, but engage in a conversation with friends and family on these issues because these are what I call cosmic and existential issues. The reason why we live in the world that we do now is because people haven't asked enough questions and people haven't figured out that it isn't questioning authority that's important, it's questioning obedience that's important. 
Because question authority is sexy, but question obedience is where the rubber hits the road. That's where the fulcrum of the state lies, because once the state loses the ability to fulfill the obedience of its entire citizenry, it can no longer exist. Yeah, very well said, and, and uh, I, I, I very much endorse that, that a key is simply just really thinking for oneself and, and doing one's own homework. And things, things become much more clear once you do that, once you unplug from the mainstream narratives and all that stuff and do your own thinking. What I'm hoping is that I bring up the Herrero and the Makwa genocide at the turn of the 20th century and the linkage to Leto Vorbeck so that we don't hear or worship him, even though he did an extraordinary job in German Southeast Africa. But I don't want to paint these all as necessarily heroes. I want you to know, for instance, CJ, you mentioned the 1871 uh, abortive investment of Korea militarily by the United States. I'm certain there are members of the audience who weren't aware of that or some of the other things that we've, we've talked about. I urge you to look into the Mau Mau counterinsurgency. I urge you to look into this entire narrative where they say, well, the British broke the code on how to do coin. Don't listen to the Fox News commentators or the CNN commentators. Investigate this stuff yourself. CJ provides this great portal by which we can give you some of these instantiations and examples of why current historiographical and historic thinking is wrong, why some of the wrong lessons have been learned, and why some of the conclusions are so corrupt. Look into it yourself, because if you look into it yourself, you'll become better read, better acquainted. Maybe you'll come to a different conclusion. But nonetheless, you're engaged in this great conversation because there's a reason they call it programming on TV. There's a reason why CJ and I have spent quite literally hundreds if not thousands of hours deprogramming ourselves from the educational establishments that we've attended because for the most part, they are educational establishments that have one thing in mind. That's to create a compliant citizenry instead of an intelligent and questioning and skeptical citizenry. Yes, absolutely. Very well said. And I'm sure you have, you've had a similar experience that I've had in your, in your dealings with, regular academia, you know, getting the degrees that you have and so on. Yes. It, it, is a, it is a weird, weird sort of experience. It's like being, it's like participating in a, in a religion that you don't believe in and you just have to kind of go through the motions, you know, in order to get your, to get whatever certificate or, or piece of paper you're trying to get. And, and you kind of got to just go along with it. I mean, not, not that you, not that you ever, actively endorse or support the things that they're saying, but you have to kind of, to a point, sort of put up with it. I agree. And that was, that was certainly my undergraduate experience. I have to say my graduate experience was quite a bit more open-minded and receptive to my unorthodox and eccentric views. Oh, okay. So well, that's good. Um, we're going to be wrapping up this episode shortly. We've been going a while now, but um, <laughs> just just wanted to give to give you a chance. If there's anything you wanted to say, closing out this episode about the the recent wars and conflicts in the Middle East that you haven't said already, just wanted to give you give you the chance to have the floor for a few minutes if you wanted to chime in on any of that. What I want to say is, I'm amazed at the strategic deficit disorder that America and the West suffers in that they start these conflicts within the Middle East, which we can go all the way back to Churchill, 
to see how they were crafted in these map lines put in the sand that quite literally put people at odds and at war with each other because of colonial constructs, confines. You could look at Palestine, you could look at Iraq, you could look at what's happened to the Tur- between the Turks and the Kurds, and all of that. All of these are authored by the West. What astonishes me is the unintended consequences of the second and third order effects that, that are occurring as we speak today. For instance, I just read an article where Petraeus was saying we need to do something, and I'm paraphrasing, something to protect the survival of al-Qaeda in Syria. I, I, I was just astonished. And I would urge the audience to take a look at IS, ISIS, ISIL, and there's a lot to be said for why is it the Islamic forces of the Levant. Look that up and you'll find out and you'll discover what the Levant is and what they intend on doing. Where did they come from? They were U.S. and Western sponsored. If you look at Syria, if you look at Libya, if you look at Iraq, if you look at Afghanistan, you look at the Horn of Africa, what you discover is you find this mad scientist laboratory of unintended consequences in which America and the West apparently had plans, but those plans went so awry that it's like a Frankenstein's monster that's been set loose. So I don't know what the Middle East is going to look like in the future, but here's what I do know what America is going to look like in the future. There's going to be much less individual liberty. There's going to be much less individual freedom. There's going to be a bigger state. And I guarantee you, because of those three things I just talked about, there is going to be Newton's third law in which there are going to be reactions to all the actions that are occurring. And I would suggest that the map of America in two decades is going to be significantly different from what it looks like today. And and a lot of these horrible, tragic things could have been avoided if only people actually bothered to learn real history and really learn, learn the lessons of, of what the facts tell us rather than just trying to plug things into their political narrative. Amen. Amen. Oh well, I guess I guess all we can do is uh, is our own little our own little parts in trying to uh, uh, counter the bad ideas and and replace them with better ideas in whatever humble way we can. All right, thanks yet again to Bill for joining me on the Dangerous History Podcast. I really do appreciate it and have enjoyed it very much. Next time will be the fifth and final episode of this mini series, so look for that to be coming out probably early next week. Make sure to check out my website, profcj.org, to find the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. In those show notes, you'll find links to various things, including to books and films, and sometimes articles and things like that that we mentioned in the episode, or that are just related to the topics we discussed, but maybe we didn't mention specifically. So lots of good, helpful material to help you carry on your own campaign of self-cultivation via the Guerrilla Scholar Warrior path. Please feel free to leave comments about this episode in the show notes for this specific episode. And you can also email me at the email address profcj at profcj.org for questions, comments, feedback, anything related to the Dangerous History Podcast. Remember, you can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter, and you can also subscribe to the podcast in a variety of ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. There are several ways you can help support the show. One simply is to help spread the word. That's always much appreciated. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can help the show financially in several ways. One is to go to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up to support the show on a per episode basis there. If you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I record. And if you've signed up to donate at least $1 per episode, 
you'll have access to bonus episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. You can also visit profcj.org donate to find additional ways to help out the show. You can donate via PayPal or Bitcoin. And of course, one more way you can help out the show financially is by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon.com affiliate links found throughout my website. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ today, along with Bill Bupert, once again helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.